COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID. It's Friday night and I'm here in the Government Press Centre in Government Buildings where we've just had a series of press briefings on reopening the country. As things stand this evening, two more people with COVID-19 have died, bringing the total number of coronavirus-related deaths to 1,714. 13 new cases of COVID-19 have also been recorded. That means there have now been a total of 25,368 confirmed cases. Of course, the big news this week is that the reopening of a number of sectors have now moved into phase three of the easing of COVID restrictions. And so gyms, cinemas and churches can reopen from June 29th. The roadmap to reopening the country is being rephased and nearly everything has been moved to phase three, including hairdressers, barbers and beauticians. Small weddings and other social and cultural gatherings of less than 50 people indoors or 200 outdoors if the weather is good will also be allowed from June 29th. Personal responsibility will become much more important in our country. People are being asked to follow a new acronym, DATE. That stands for Distance, Activity, Time and Environment. Taoiseach Leo Radker, in his final address to the nation, stood on the steps of government buildings to reveal an acceleration of the roadmap. So taking personal responsibility means not entering your place if you see that it's packed. It means leaving somewhere, even if you're having a good time, if you've been there for too long. It means exercising judgment and self-control for your own sake but also for the collective good. This rephasing of the roadmap has been made possible by the solidarity you've shown and the sacrifices, decisions and choices that you've made over the last few months. That has made it possible for us as a nation to suppress this virus. Instead of being forced back, we've been able to push the spread of the virus back and advance forward. There is, of course, more work we need to do and we need to show the same determination and ambition now in leading our economic recovery, creating new jobs, getting people back to work and businesses reopened. Many people have asked how quickly can we bounce back and how long will it take before our economy returns to where it was before, with a job for everyone who wants one, poverty in decline and incomes on the rise. The truth is we cannot know for sure. Some have asked whether there's a limit to what we can achieve. My answer is that limit does not exist. We've been here before and we know the way out. We know what needs to be done and the next roadmap will be a roadmap for economic recovery, the National Recovery Plan. In the years to come, we will never forget how the world was upended in 2020. Never again will we take something as simple as a haircut for granted, our time spent with parents or grandparents, or meeting friends for a drink. 
And for the Mean Girls fans among you out there, and I'm sure there's lots of them, yes, you did hear Leo Varadkar quote the smash hit film in his speech. His use of the line, the limit does not exist, refers to Lindsay Lohan's line during a maths quiz in the iconic film. Viewers of the address to the country were keenly looking out for a movie reference after Leo Varadkar used a line from Lord of the Rings in a recent speech too. Now, all sporting activity can also resume from June 29th. However, individual organisations are going to have to decide for themselves how best to proceed and whether or not they'll start up again, particularly at a competitive level. Strict limitations on spectators will still apply. Minister Shane Ross held a press briefing earlier announcing a grants package of €70 million to support clubs and bodies whose survival is at risk because of COVID-19. I'm delighted that Brendan Griffin and I are here this evening to give you some very good news on what's been a good day for sport. Uh, The government's The Cabinet today agreed to give up to 70 million to open up sport uh, in this country. Funds will be open and will be available to be administered by Sport Ireland to field sports, to national governing bodies and to small sports clubs. Ireland has missed sport in recent times. Communities have suffered an enormous amount. But sport has played a great part in communities and delivering to vulnerable people during that period. And this particular allotment of of money is, I suppose, a recognition of the tremendous community work which has been done by small small sports clubs, by large sports clubs, and by many other people uh, to, to help vulnerable people. The famous reproductive number of how many people are likely to contract COVID from a confirmed case remains well below one. It's at 0.7, so it's clear transmission of the virus is still low in this country. However, health officials say a number of new coronavirus cases related to travel is a cause for concern. Fewer than 10 have been recorded over the last two weeks. Some relate to people coming here from the UK and Sweden. Professor Philip Nolan is chair of Neffet's COVID-19 modelling advisory group and he says the emergence of new travel related cases in this country is worrying. It's a little bit of a concern uh, that early in the epidemic we of course were seeing a large number of travel related cases and just over the last two weeks we've begun to see a small number of travel related cases but it does is a cause for concern nonetheless. Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan took the opportunity of the new cases linked to travel to remind people that the public health advice in relation to travel has not changed one bit. We're still very clear that uh, our advice and guidance in relation to people who are planning non-essential travel holidays, for example, outside of Ireland, now is not the time. And for anybody who's planning tourist travel to Ireland, we're also advising now is not the time. Now, while the airlines are doing a big push for customers to purchase flights and consider heading abroad, many people around the country are opting for staycations. Barry White reports. In 2019, Ireland will have welcomed 9.6 million visitors to our shores and 12 million Irish trips. That adds up to a sizeable contribution to the economy and the country's finances. That was last year. Bus COVID-19 has changed the face of Irish tourism. And there's no doubt the industry has taken a huge hit. Our season would go from March to October, so we have lost over 50% of our business. Also, too, the, the, the cruising sector, the cruising industry calls to mainly smaller towns, rural towns and villages. 
on the Shannon. So it's 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 having a huge effect on them as well too. Well, this would be the height of our season. Every boat would be out today. Uh, business would be flying. As you can see, there's nothing out. No boats out, no people around, nothing happening. No income. And if tourism is to survive here, Irish people are going to have to choose staycations this summer. Oh God, I actually, I do know travelling around Ireland. I would never even think of going down the country for a staycation. In Ireland, no, I wouldn't really go on holiday. Um, during the summer, it'd always been a broad thing. No, it would have been always going foreign. I would have done a lot of travelling in my time. Egypt, Morocco. But a staycation wouldn't yes. have been first choice normally? No, no, no. Going abroad would be would be the first that, that we'd look for. I mean, a staycation, a weekend away, that's kind of something that you have throughout the year, if you can at all. Like, you'd have a few weekends away. But a holiday, holiday is going away, getting on a plane, and mostly because of the weather, because we're not guaranteed the weather over here. And unless you have the sun, you don't feel like you're on holiday. So it, you would normally go, go away. I'm not interested in staycations. <laughs> However, as restrictions are starting to be lifted, are we about to see people's attitudes change towards holidaying at home? Yeah, at staycation. Probably Galway. But I mean, knowing Ireland, they're probably up all their prices and that, you know? That's what you're up against. We've had to cancel our trip uh, to Italy and I see staycations for the rest of the year, like going to Galway or trying Belfast even. It's just, it's too scary going abroad. Yeah, I mean, look, at Ireland is beautiful. You know, we, we can see, it, and if the weather is good at the moment and if it continues like this, I think we'll have a nice, and it'll be nice to, to, to have, um, you know, to give back. I suppose we've been looked after all the time that we've been off and that. So it'd be nice to kind of spend a bit of money in the country. Look, there's good deals in hotels at the moment, so you know, any, anywhere the West is always nice. Probably just go down the West or go somewhere like that here in Ireland. Ireland is just as nice as anywhere else. I'll vacate here in Ireland. Uh, I have a boat there, so I'm lucky. So we do a couple of weeks on the Shannon. And that'll be it this year. I would hope to go on short holidays here in Ireland, going around doing the islands and things like that. I'm hoping to do that. Now, some businesses that would normally cater for mostly foreign tourists during the summer months are already being inundated with calls from Irish people looking to holiday at home this year. Michael Barrett, Lakeside Day Boat Hire, based in Loch Ree, just outside at Lone. Well, this would be the height of our season. Every boat would be out today. Uh, business would be flying. As you can see, there's nothing out. No boats out, no people around, nothing happening. No income. Our business is 60% foreign broke down as follows, 40% uh, from abroad, 20% from Northern Ireland, and about 40% domestic. But at the moment, we have nobody, none at all. What are your hopes? What are your fears for the upcoming season? Our, our hopes for what's left of the season is that the Irish will start holiday, stay at home, the staycation element, and that we'll be able to have a half-decent end of season. But that's only a hope that's often said that's going to come true. Have you had much inquiries from people who are just, hoping to stay here? Just starting a little bit now. Just a little bit. Nothing nothing great, but a small bit, yeah. Do you think Irish people will still choose to, to go on a foreign holiday this summer? I would hope not. I would hope they'd stay at home and, and support local industry. It's a risk going abroad, as you know yourself. Uh, but we don't know. I'm listening to the radio and, and the television. They tell me foreign bookings are up already. 
So we'll have to wait and see. What uh, lasting impact is this going to have on businesses uh, like yourself? Like, for instance, how many people do you employ here? We, we employ six in the all year round and about ten in the summer. Uh, if, if we don't get up and going and if we don't get running, we won't be employing anybody. We won't be taking anybody back. How important is it in the upcoming summer that people choose to, to holiday at home? It's vital for the economy. If, if we're going to salvage anything from this epidemic, it, it, it will depend on people staying at home and supporting local industry, i.e. supporting the, the boating business, the Shannon business, the restaurants, the hotels, the golf courses, anything at all to do with tourism. Barbara Smith, I'm Marketing Director of Silverline Cruisers. We're a family-run business um, operating um, self-drive cruisers on the River Shannon here in Banner in County Offaly. And yes, predominantly our our main market would be the Germans, the Austrians, the Swiss. So it would make up, I suppose, 60% would be overseas. We're here, it's the middle of June. It's quite warm here, a Sunday afternoon. There's dozens of boats here in the marina. If you go back to this day last year, would this have been the same picture? Yeah, no, uh, all of these boats would have been out. Everybody enjoying themselves on the water. Um, it's just, it's been very difficult over the last few months, especially when the weather's been so good. The the river has been picturesque in, in, in the great weather we're after having and nobody has been out on the water. But um, but look, we're, we're, we're ready for the end of June and we're happy that we've got the be able to start at the end of June and we're getting the full month of July out of it. Looking into the future, next month, August, September, are you hopeful that Irish people will choose to to holiday at home this year? Yeah, we've been very, very busy, thankfully, with bookings and inquiries from the domestic market and we're very um, confident we've, we've we have been extremely busy and we have a great July and August. We do still have a, um, overseas business, overseas bookings. So we're just waiting on the, on the decision from the government that if the country is going to be open for the overseas business and that the, the um, 14 day self-quarantine will be, will be abolished. How important is it for tourism businesses in Ireland that Irish people choose staycations this summer? Yeah, I think it's extremely important. It's um, it's important for all the all the, the, the tourism sectors ac- um, across the country. And I think it, it, it will also have a very positive effect even f- for years, you know, next year and even the following year, because there is so much to do here. Hi, I'm Sue Best. Uh, myself and my husband run Lazy Days. We're a Volkswagen camper hire company in the heart of Wicklow. Um, and we welcome people from far and wide to tour Ireland in our beautiful camper vans. Normally speaking, we're welcoming people from all over the globe, uh, you know, from people from Canada and Australia. Uh, we Very, very tiny proportion of Irish people usually during the summer months. We tend to get Irish people in the, in the shoulder months for shorter hires. So this year is going to be very different. Uh, it's fully an Irish billing across the board. And we've taken the decision not to hire two international tourists, um, you know, until later in the year, possibly September or October, when, when travel restrictions are lifted. So we feel... Also, that will give our Irish customers confidence that um, things are staying local and, and national, which you know I think is, is the right way to go this year. Have you had a lot of inquiries about Irish people who are planning to, 
to holiday at home this year? Absolutely. The phone literally is hopping all day long and tons and tons of inquiries. So, you know, we're getting close to booking out. We still have a little bit of availability in July, the first half of July and later into August. We still have a few left um, and certainly even on into September and October. And I fully expect that the season will go on a bit later this year. Um, I mean, September is always a popular month anyway, but I suspect it will extend. You know, people will still want to get away for the weekend in October and beyond. Do you think Irish people are going to embrace the staycation this summer? Oh, I fully believe so. Um, I also think it's going to be quite a special year out there because it really is only Irish people on the road. So all of those beautiful destinations, world-class destinations that we have in Ireland um, along the West Coast and, you know, in the north of Ireland, the whole island really, um, there won't be a, a huge amount of tourist foreign tourist traffic so I think it will be quite uh, quite a cosy special Irish experience this year and it'll be very nice A lot of flights will be running again from next month so people could still have the option of travelling abroad but will people be weary of flying? Yeah well we've had to cancel our trip uh, to Italy and it's too scary going abroad so you would be wary about flying? I'd be more wary about getting there and then the whole country's locked down or I can't actually do anything over there, so I don't want to waste my money. No, I'm completely on the opposite end. I would easily go, like, if the airport's opened up right now, I'd easily go on holiday. Like, I wouldn't have an issue whatsoever. Oh, very, very wary. No way would I go abroad this summer. Uh, I don't think it's right that people go abroad because there is that chance that they come back with the virus. And uh, it's happened to the country once. So I think that... Uh, we should leave it until next year, maybe, or until things are more, uh, you know, till we know where we are. We have our holiday booked um, to go to Spain, so we're due to go to Spain in July. Um, so we're kind of at the moment we're waiting on uh, the, the travel company to let us know if it is going ahead or if it's not. We've made up our mind we're not going anyway, but obviously we don't want to lose out on money, so we're hoping to get a refund on what we've paid, but definitely no matter what the outcome is, no, no, we're not. Why would you not go? Are you just weary about flying, yeah. about the pandemic? Weary about flying, obviously, and then um, just even seeing the precautions that are in place on Ryanair and that, like, you know, going, putting on a mask for the length of time that you're on the, the plane, you know, and things like you can't touch your bag, make sure your bag is dropped, like, from the minute you go into the terminal you're going to be kind of looking at people as if everyone is diseased and that's just not a holiday on account of the pandemic i wouldn't like to you know what i mean we probably only have to if we went abroad to be like here you'd have to put the masks on the gloves the sanitizer. it wouldn't be a holiday as such you know what i mean so you'd be safer at home i wasn't really fair for like if the holiday went ahead i would have went but it's the 14-day quarantine coming home that was turning me off going. But if we didn't have to quarantine, I probably would have went. So where were you meant to be going? Uh, Greece, yeah. And has that been cancelled? Yeah, it's been. It, we just got the email the other day that it was cancelled. We were supposed to go in July, the start of July. So that was cancelled now. But yeah, I probably would have still... That the, wearing the face masks and stuff, I wouldn't have really minded that that much. So as restrictions continue to be eased, what will people choose this summer? A holiday abroad or will they choose a staycation? That report from Barry White. Coming up next, Professor Luke O'Neill brings us up to speed with the latest news from the world of science and COVID-19. 
Welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. Professor Luke O'Neill joined Pat Kenny on Wednesday morning with the very latest in the battle of science versus COVID-19. This week, he looked at the origins of COVID-19. Good morning, Pat. How's it going? It's going very well. Now, you're a PhD from 1988. Uh, it's a long time ago, and yet you had to dust it down. Why? I did, yeah. This this is a bit egocentric, but it's about <laughs> this drug dexamethasone that's hit the news this week. I worked on that all those years ago, and I, I got my thesis from the shelf, you know, and I had a few bit of data on dexamethasone. It's a very powerful anti-inflammatory steroid, which has been kicking around for a long time, actually, you know. And, and many of us worked on it back in the 80s because we saw it as a really important anti-inflammatory drug, effectively. And lo and behold, uh, this trial in Oxford, there was a press release, mind you, we'd like to see the uh, the scientific paper, but a press release came out saying it might work in COVID. And it was interesting, Pat, because um, in patients who are very severe on ventilators, particularly, they, they showed a special benefit. There's going to be a third decrease in fatalities they're predicting now might be possible by giving people dexamethasone. So we see this as a very interesting development. And the methodology by which it works is fully understood. N- nearly. I mean, steroids have been known for a long time Pat, to be anti-inflammatory and people might be familiar with them. If, you're, if you've got asthma, you might inhale a steroid that might prevent inflammation in your lungs or even in creams on skin. You know, steroids are anti-inflammatory. So they've been seen as a big thing and they were used as a standard of care in arthritis for a long time, you see. And then massive effort went into to try to figure out how they work. And they are very powerful anti-inflammatory molecules. They turn off uh, the genes that get turned on, if you like, during inflammation. And in my thesis, we looked at a gene called IL-1, and there was a massive suppression of that. So so in other words, we've known for quite a while they kind of counter the inflammatory pathways. So the mechanism was known. This one's interesting, but it, it does work in lung diseases, you see. There would be dexamethasone would have been used in asthmatics, for instance. And that gave the people, I guess, the idea Let's try it now in COVID because it's a lung disease and that inspired them to do the study, I suppose. It's a more old-fashioned steroid. Newer ones came along, like fluticasone is one, for instance. So it's seen as a an early steroid. Cheap as hell, Pat, by the way. It's five. They reckon it'll cost 30 euro to treat a patient. Isn't that incredible? If this all pans out. So in other words, it's a real option if, if the data holds up, of course. I'd, I'd love to see the paper, though. It had been tried before in respiratory distress and other infections and didn't really work that well. It was a bit kind of plus minus. There was some hint it was working. So we need to see the final paper when it comes out. But certainly, Pat, the press release was very striking, wasn't it? They made a big announcement. Mm. They called it a breakthrough. You know, and they were always, we've got to be careful these days, don't we, with these rush to print uh, or rush to publish stuff. So, But even still, I, I can't wait to see the actual publication. Okay, uh, another piece of, I suppose it's only anecdotal, uh, but it's news, and it's about a hairdressing salon in Missouri called Great Clips. This is a great one. I think you, you came across this. Yeah, this is a really imp- potentially important study. Again, it's a bit anecdotal, but uh, they, they, as we know, we're reopening hairdressers soon, I guess, everywhere. There were two hairdressers who were infected for definite. Uh, they, they would have treated or not treated, uh, you know, cut the hair or whatever, 140 different clients. So there was a risk that they would be infected. And guess what? None of them got infected. So this was really good because obviously two hairdressers that were positive for the virus could have been at risk of spreading it to several people. And, and of course, the, the answer, it's seems to be, Pat, is the measures that the hairdressing salon used. Great Clips, it's a great name for a hairdresser, isn't it? I love these hairdresser mm. names. But, but Great Clips, anyway, they wore masks, very importantly. They had a staggered uh, pay, uh, hair, uh, clients coming in and so on. They were very careful how many clients per, per unit time, I suppose. Uh, and then they distanced chairs and so on. So there's various measures in place 
in the hairdressing salon, which which may may be the reason why nobody got infected. So this gives us hope yeah. that if you adopt these measures, say in a hairdresser or somewhere, you might be able, in, you know, not being able to maintain social distancing and so on. You may you may not spread infection. So it's a good one that one. So basically, uh, wearing the mask, she this particular stylist, eighty four people, they reckon she spent at least a half an hour, like inches away from them, as she was working. But she was wearing a mask, a mask, and none of her clients actually developed COVID. So it is a straw in the wind, but it's an important one. It might illustrate the effect of, of masks, um, and we do want to talk about the virus itself. And it's lack of affinity for cotton, because as we know, we've been saying to people, if you can't buy a mask, one of those medical grade masks, just make one yourself out of an old cotton T-shirt. Yeah, this could be one of the more important ones this week, Pat, because again, remember even three or four months ago, we discussed where the virus might live. In other words, you cough it out and it lands on the tabletop or on a, you know, your mirror or whatever it is. And they were testing various surfaces all along during this period. And lo and behold, softer surfaces that can't really live on, which is an interesting development. And lo and behold, cotton, they showed if you put virus on the cotton, within one hour, 99.9% of that virus has been killed. Isn't that incredible? So 0.1%. Uh, survived being on cotton for an hour. Uh, by 24 hours, there was no virus li- live on the cotton anymore. So it looks as if cotton in particular, it could be other soft surfaces as well, but cut- in this study, cotton was shown actually to kill the virus, which is a brilliant finding. Of course, again, if it holds up, but it was a very reputable study. So, so there's something about cotton that seems to be able to kill the virus. Now, this gives us even more justification for wearing cotton masks. That that study is so important, Pat, they're now considering using cotton in the real masks in a hospital setting, you know, in the PPE equipment. There's something about cotton that might make it especially good. We think that the study actually says, Pat, it could be because um, it's about the droplet. And if you, mm-hmm. if you cough onto a metal surface, the droplet will dry out and forms a kind of a gel-like substance, they think, and the virus can live inside that gel because of the, the hard surface promotes gel formation, maybe. The cotton, it doesn't form as much as a gel. So the virus is now a bit looser, I suppose, and is more susceptible to being, you know, to dying, I guess. So so it's a fascinating one, that, isn't it, in terms of cotton masks for definite being very useful. Yeah, it's interesting, too. You talk about hard surfaces. Um, if you've got copper handles, the virus dies. If you've got steel handles, the virus lives for a little while. So uh, interesting science. We're learning more and more yep. about all of this. Now, one of the things that people were speculating about was the origin of this virus, because there was the, the former head of MI6, um, Sir Richard Dearlove, citing an important scientific report uh, suggesting that the novel coronavirus had not emerged naturally. Now, what does science say? Yeah, it's a funny one. This is the big conspiracy theory, as we've read for the last two or three months again, that uh, I was made in the lab by, you know, genetic engineering, some evil scientist or whatever, or it was an accident that got out of a lab, maybe, you know. And that guy, dear love, yeah, I mean, he said this on record. He's ex-head of MI6. He said it probably was an accident in the lab. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, said there was enormous evidence for this. Uh, and where these guys got their information, I don't know, because the scientists were all saying not as a natural virus it was a bat and then got from the bat into a human and the evidence is mounting that that's the case and and in fact the world expert on SARS recently wrote a very clear piece on this thing it, it, it happened in the wild basically and trying to track a virus by the way is not easy it, like SARS itself it took a while to track that down to bats uh, they looked at 16,000 bats can you believe it took virus out of those bats looked at the virus and it was highly similar to the one in humans so they knew it must have come from bats and now it's the same with this one uh, the same team actually that worked on SARS they took 781 
viral samples out of all these loads and loads of bats and lo and, be lo and behold they find the relative of SARS-CoV-2 in these bats from the wild and they've reported that so, th so the evidence absolutely now suggests strongly that it came from the wild and that it gets from a bat into you probably in, in, in the inevitable seafood market you know is, is the current still best guess so the notion of the conspiracy theory goes away I guess more and more yeah, um, the, the, it's not just humankind that the bats have a go at. There's a thing called SADS-CoV, Swine Acute Diarrhea Syndrome. I know. Now, this is the this study has also shown there's many coronaviruses in bats, you know. There may be hundreds of thousands of different species. And the risk is any one of those species can jump out of the bat into another animal, you see, into humans being the one we're most worried about. But there was a, a case in 2016, 2017, where a CoV, another coronavirus called SADS-CoV and as you say it was it was a pig specific one it's called swine acute diarrhea syndrome that jumped out of bats into pigs and killed 12 25,000 pigs were killed in 2016 by this virus now that's a very important um, finding pack because the coronaviruses can be lethal in other species and here's one that sadly decimated a large population of, of, of pigs you know and again they could limit that in various ways by you know controlling it but it just shows you any, any species almost could be infected by a coronavirus not just humans they've also tracked it Pat, by the way to um a region on the border of china myanmar laos and vietnam that part of china they reckon that's where the bats are that's where the, this this one SARS-CoV-2 originated. That's how precise they're getting now in terms of where the, where the wild bats were, I suppose. And it's in that border region, they reckon. Mm. Now, they did a pilot survey of people living in uh, Yunnan province. And it turned out what about the antibodies? Because we're looking for antibodies at the moment for uh, SARS-CoV-2 and uh, how much of the population might have some immunity. What did they find? You know, were lots of people infected by this thing? Yeah, that's right. So, so they, what they found was another striking thing. 3% of the people had antibodies to coronaviruses. Now, now it's one family of viruses. The seven that infect humans at the moment. But remember, there are thousands and thousands of species living in bats as well. Uh, and in these people, they found anti. In other words, all, the whole family shares certain proteins. And lo and behold, they find three percent of people had been exposed to some kind of coronavirus. And and, and kind of a number they reckon up to seven million people per year are being infected with different coronaviruses. Not not COVID two, obviously. So it looks as if these coronaviruses are in bats mainly and they infect humans and you never the people don't even know they've got it because it's not causing disease your immune system clears it very very quickly you know and then of course in this particular case one of them mutates into one that now causes disease but it's an incredible finding pat that humans basically in china near bats are being infected with different coronaviruses all the time it seems you know and not getting sick because these coronaviruses aren't causing disease now, one of the issues, of course, is the bats probably minded their own business and they lived on small wildlife. That's the way it was if they wanted to uh, get their feed. Um, but as humankind encroaches upon uh, the natural habitats of some creatures, well, we're bound to come in contact with some of the things that they live with quite happily. Yeah, that's right. But what this study is showing is, as we encroach on the bat's environment, we're going to pick up viruses off them, you see. And the bats, for some reason or other, have loads of coronaviruses. And then lo and behold, as we as we get exposed to them, or perhaps sadly even eat them or whatever it is, we are at risk now picking up those coronaviruses and they go into our bodies. And then, you know, the one in whatever the number would be, chance 
that one of them mutates and now causes a horrible disease. So it's a really important study, Pat, for the future, because, of course, now people are terrified to hear about this, but there's a risk of another one, remember, because this is happening all the time and we've got to watch this closely. And all, there's massive science now in China actually going into this in huge detail, to get, almost to stop the next one coming along. In other words, another, there's a risk another coronavirus might change in a bat and now infect us and we get, we get the SARS-CoV-3. So this work is really, really important to prevent another, you know, horrible mm. pandemic that might emerge. That's, that's the importance of this work, really. How many viruses are potentially out there that we haven't come across yet? Millions. That's the terrifying. This study, again, shows as many as 1.7 million viruses that we don't even know about hardly. This is predicted based on numbers, I guess, they're looking at could be out there. And again, it's a numbers game, Pat. The big question is, let's say there's a 2 million viruses out there. One of those mutates and now infects us. The question is, what's the probability of one of those 2 million mutating spontaneously, you know, and then forming one that infects us? So getting a handle on the total repertoire. Now, remember, Pat, when the SARS study came out and said the SARS virus was in a bat and there's a risk of another one. They raised a red flag at, at that point and said, hey, watch out. These coronaviruses mm -hmm. are dangerous. They can mutate. And of course, did we listen? We didn't, you know. And in fact, they stopped funding some of these SARS people strikingly as well. Ah, it's too much. It's too remote a possibility. And look what happened. So I, I reckon what's going to happen now is if you work on coronavirus, you get loads of grants for life. Just keep studying them because obviously this is this has caused this huge pandemic. So these studies are very, very important for the future. Yeah, bit though like looking for money for climate change research a few years back, you always got it if you were on the right side of science. And now anyone trying to do work on coronavirus will probably get the cash uh, from some institution. Now, uh, Luke, there's a big puzzle, and that is why are some areas more affected than others? Explain. Yeah, I mean, the great thing is that there's more and more data now. Can you imagine the number of people looking at numbers in this situation? You know, how many people got infected in what part of the world? Why might that be? And so on. So oceans of data are now being analysed. Because remember, Pat, the numbers are still striking in terms of who's been infected. Is it 7 million people now, I think, is it, it's up to that number. So we, the, the, the data scientists are all over this, basically. And it's really interesting where, who, which part of the world get, does, does worse than others. You know, So in Italy, for example, Rome was completely spared effectively from this virus. And that's a bit strange. It's the capital, you know, loads of travel, whereas Lombardy was badly hit. And even in Lombardy, some villages had zero cases, other had lots of cases. Uh, Japan is interesting, Pat, quite an old population in Japan, uh, on average. They should have been badly hit and yet they'd no massive first wave and yet there was obviously virus in japan at the time so so lots of work is going into trying to figure out who got you know which part of the world was protected and who didn't and and there's loads of answers of course the older population is one but but japan is a fascination pattern if this sounds unlikely but one reason they think japan didn't get affected japanese people bow they don't shake hands and mm -hmm. something simple like that could stop it spreading in Japan. It's amazing, isn't it, that something as simple as a behavioural thing. We know hands, hands are very important as a source of spread. So if you bow instead of shake someone's hand, that might decrease spread. The big one, Pat, though, is what's called cross-protection. There's more evidence for this now emerging. If you had any coronavirus, like the ones that cause the common cold, they will have similar things in them to SARS-CoV-2. So the immune system recognizes the common cold and then can also recognize SARS-CoV-2 when it comes along later. And so you might be protected. It's called cross-protection. And there's more and more evidence for this. And it's the T-cells, this specific part of the immune system called T-cells. They're the ones coming out that cross-protect you. So in certain parts of the world, for whatever reason, maybe the common cold was more you know, frequent or whatever it might be. Yeah. And therefore, then when COVID-2 comes along, hey, presto, that population is slightly more protected. So, so these are very interesting findings, again, because they might tell us a lot about where this virus might lurk 
and then where that might be most dangerous. So if you happen to have the common cold at the moment, for example, and this is a question from John in Limerick, ask Luke about the idea that some of us have innate immunity from previous coronaviruses. But if, if you have the common cold and you, your body mounts a big response, which generally sorts out the cold in two or three days, that if uh, SARS-CoV-2 attacked you at the same time, it might yep. just be told to go away. Absolutely. That's the fascinating conclusion from this. Now, what's interesting about it is the more severe cold you've had, if you're a really bad cold, your immune system is really in overdrive, really gets its act together, if you like, makes all the molecules, and now you might be protected. A milder cold doesn't get the immune system going strong enough. And that seems to be the case with COVID-2 itself, remember, because if it goes deep into your lungs, you get really, really sick from it, there's a good chance you're going to have more protection and you won't get it again. You know, this big question that we still have, by the way. If you're infected, will you never get it again? If you have a very severe course, you're more likely not to get it again than if you had a mild disease. So it does seem to be the strength of the immune response that might protect you in the future. And maybe the common cold. And, and by the way, Pat, the other coronaviruses we just mentioned, you know, in China, in China they may protect against COVID-2 as well. Because, again, they're shared bits, if you like. They're all in the one family because they've got, okay. like any family, so the similarities, you know. So in, in theory, this is only a theory, you could find a, a virus that doesn't do you much harm a member of the, the the family, as it were, and use that as a vaccine. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that's, that's exactly what a vaccine is in some ways. It's the weakened form of the nasty one, you know. But it could be a relative that might protect you. So that's very interesting as a prospect. We feel. Now, uh, antibodies. Uh, we're all into antibody testing at the moment. The Scopy project is underway here, um, but you need to know how good your test is. Number one, and whether the specific antibodies you find are ones that protect you. So. Yeah. What's the news? Well, I, this is, I think this is the most optimistic message in the whole business. As you know, massive effort. There's 161 vaccines in development. There's, there's, let's see, it's got 170 I saw last night. Um, so massive effort with vaccines, but there's always a risk they won't work and they take a long time. The other plan is just to use antibodies to protect you because obviously what the vaccine does is it brings out antibodies anyway and the antibodies kill the virus. Why not use antibodies as a therapy? Has been kicking. It's, mind you, it's been kicking around for decades in immunology. You can stop diphtheria by giving someone antibodies you know, so it's, a, it's an old idea and it's true. You can actually do this. Now, there's 64 antibodies in development at the moment. Many are in trials. Remember, they're safe because you can just give someone antibodies and this will now effectively stop the virus. Uh, Regeneron have a technology called Velocimmune. Isn't that a great name? Everything's getting speeded up, basically, to make things go faster. And now we're seeing the first hints in humans that these antibodies are going to work. And remember, Pat, they're, as I say, they're safe. They're not difficult to make. So, so some people are now saying when we get to, say, September even, this could be the first really impressive treatment to give people. Because remember, if we don't get a vaccine, we've got to treat people in hospital and stop them getting really sick. Antibodies are a massive option. And, and a couple in particular are standing up now is really effective. Now, of course, you show this, first of all, in a test tube, you show it can kill the virus in various ways. Then you test it in animals next, and they've done all this now. And then finally, you go into humans. And now those trials are running at full pelt, really, because this would be a tremendous option, you know? Now, some of the questions uh, coming in. Uh, one, uh, is Mycobacterium xenopi a COVID virus? It's no, bacterium, was, so it's not a virus. That's the bacterium. Yeah, never heard of that one, actually. Yeah, the mycobacteria are a big family of bacteria. Obviously, the one that causes TB is the one that we all worry about. The BCG vaccine, by the way, is based on a mycobacteria. So, so they are, they are, they're not viruses, no, the bacteria. Mm. Another one saying the ultimate answer is to cull the bats, as many boss bats as possible. 
Mm. You'd be Tricky. a bit nervous because they have their place in the whole food chain and well, all of that. And if you remove the bats, what thrives? You'd have an insect explosion there, Pat, because bats control insect levels, for instance. So I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Sadly, it does seem like an obvious thing, doesn't it? In a way, you know, very hard to cull lots of bats in China. There's so many of them, you know, they'd have a hard job there. Um, TB and cows kill the badgers. Depleted salmon stock kill the seals. COVID kill the bats. When are we going to take a good look at ourselves and realise our part in our own downfall? That's uh, from Mary. Um, can you ask, you might know this, Luke, but I'll ask you, did smokers get COVID-19 more or less than non-smokers? And was the fatality rate higher among smokers? That's from Paul. That's a really good one, but that, that, that emerged a few weeks ago. I think we discussed there were smokers were slightly protected, strangely, you know. And of course, the prediction was they shouldn't be because they should have lungs that are more vulnerable because they smoke and the lungs are where this is most mischievous, of course. But there's some evidence that smokers are slightly more protected. And that's giving rise to trials with nicotine, of all things. In fact, the hypothesis there was that nicotine might somehow latch on to the what we call the receptor for the virus on lung cells. It's called ACE2 and stop the virus getting in. So now they're trying nicotine patches of all things, you know. So there's some evidence that smoking might not that we'd encourage smoking for lots of reasons of course but there's some evidence smoking might slightly protect uh, from actually getting the infection in the first place but yeah, yeah. if you do get it and your lungs are in flitters um, you know that's a, a peril that, that's right um, new speculation that the virus may be causing neurological changes in young people's brains now I don't yeah. I haven't heard that perhaps you know what this uh, speculation is about should we follow New Zealand policy and put the army in charge at Dublin airport um, and the ports or the Chinese policy of firefighting, which policy is best? Um, Australia's banning all international flights except to New Zealand uh, until 2021. And we know that Jacinda Ardern, we played the clip yesterday, very annoyed at the yep. two who, on compassionate reasons, were let back into New Zealand and then brought COVID-19 back in. So, yeah, the New Zealand neurological case, damage. Well, that New Zealand case, Pat, tells us how fragile the system is. There's always a risk of something getting through. And remember, it's a very contagious virus. So with the best will in the world, it's hard to stop those things, isn't it, in a sense? But she, she did get angry, didn't she? How, how could this happen, of course, because New Zealand have this, this pristine record. But uh, it, again, it just illustrates the trickiness of how to, maintain, to control this, I guess. Yeah, the neurological thing, that's interesting, Pat. There's no doubt there's effects, on, effects to do with uh, the brain in various ways. We think the virus can affect various outputs from the brain. Uh, the younger people think that's extremely rare. Still, thankfully, one or two reports, but nothing to be too worried about at the moment. But remember, the famous symptom, Pat, is loss of taste and smell. That's really an effect on nerves that pick up taste and smell, you know. So we know the virus can have effects. And then, of course, the big thing term is just chronic fatigue syndrome. That's becoming a very... The big thing people worry about now, but is the post-viral scenarios. People don't die necessarily if people get over it, but they're more longer term symptoms. And that's much worse than flu again. So we watch that very closely. And some of that fatigue type response could be an effect on on the brain, I guess. So that's something that's very active in terms of research. Um, Someone's suggesting that in uh, Beijing, the men especially spew out their phlegm onto the street. They were well known as spitters, but they all seem to be wearing uh, masks at at the moment. Um, And a number of uh, people talking about the wet markets all over Southeast Asia, that they should be banned. Um, And that's one question or a general observation. And another wondering, will we have a, a great increase in the number of autoimmune disease cases because of all our excessive cleaning now? That, that's the big thing. That, that There's all kinds of things to look at in the future. Exactly, yes. And, and you see, you need to have some immune system activation uh, because if you don't, the immune system go out of kilter. It's like keeping your troops trained in the right way, I suppose. And if you don't train them up, it might get a bit nasty. So autoimmunity and allergy 
especially asthma as a concern. So that's being looked at closely. The secret, clearly, Pat, we now know a lot about the virus in terms of coming from bats. So the question is, how do we stop that happening again? And they have to look at those seafood markets and say, look, how do we stop this happening? Because, again, why wouldn't it happen again if you have loads of bats being sold, live bats particularly in the markets? And as the other thing, Pat, I think we mentioned before that's become even clearer is if you stress a bat, so if you put a bat in a cage, they secrete 10 times the amount of coronaviruses than an unstressed bat, but because they're breathing very fast. I mean, it's cruel, isn't it? You know? and, and these bats are terrified in these markets because they're beside other animals and so on. So the, the Chinese need to look at this very, very closely, I think. Mm. Um, any further news on the BCG uh, vaccination as offering some protection? Uh, we talked about it, obviously, on the programme, and we looked at places like Portugal, where they have that from birth, and Spain, where they don't, and Portugal had few, fewer cases, dramatically fewer cases than Spain. Uh, any news in that study yet? The, well, that, that correlation study is still there. It's still not clear what it means. I mean, the Portuguese have gone up in numbers, by the way. So that's one of the countries that uh, have done slightly less well lately. So very hard to know whether that correlation thing would hold up or not. And the mechanism behind the correlation it was about the kid, children more than the adults. But it's still interesting, by the way. Some of that still stands up, that data. Uh, and yet again, we're waiting. I mean, we were, I would predict in about two to three weeks we'll have an update on whether BCG is showing any effects at all, really. Now, the question of antibody tests, the people are actually buying them at the moment, going and getting tested, um, and we need to know how reliable they are, and they might find an antibody, but it mightn't be the right one that gives you immunity. So yeah, yeah. where do we stand in all of that? Well, but the big, there's a couple of issues that have emerged. It's the amount of antibody in your system, you see it, because these, these kits are trying to detect antibody, aren't they? And the dipstick ones, the one you put a drop of blood on, they're, they're quite insensitive. So, you know, you need to have a prop. The best way to test antibodies in a hospital setting, very elaborate machinery. It's called the ELISA, is the method. And they pick up really sensitive, you know, and they quantify it very carefully. So that's, that's the gold standard test, which are used in hospitals. Outside that, I still believe none of those kits are fully reliable. So I wouldn't be using them yet. And remember, the FDA, FDA have dithered. They said some kits were good and some weren't, so they're backtracking a bit. So, so the antibody testing business, at least outside a hospital setting, is still rather uncertain, I would say. And I think it is partly because you might have, you know, a hundredth of the amount of antibody to me, and we both have had the virus. So, so it's not as if it's like, you know, we're, we're both going to test positive in that situation with, with a kit that isn't sensitive. So there's a few issues around the antibody testing still, I think. Now, Kitty and the Gascon, of course, announced the he's looking for 5,000 people. That's a great thing to do. So people should contact the HSE because they're looking for to test antibody properly, you know. Yeah. In, I think in, they're, in, they're the right. sending out letters. We can't volunteer. I'd be first in the queue. Although, yeah. you know, being cocooned, maybe there's no reason I would have had it. But, you know, we all had one of those uh, fluish type things during the winter and we're wondering, was it COVID? Yeah. If it wasn't after February or March, it probably wasn't COVID. That's the bottom line. That, that's right at the moment. Yeah. But this, this is a good study, but it's like a random thing almost because you, you can't take 5,000 people who you definitely know had the virus. That won't tell you very much. The goal of that is to figure out what's the percent of Irish people who've had the virus. Now, we were predicted it's only going to be 10% or less from other studies and the initial things, but we need to get a good, good, good number there, don't we, to figure out what the percent. If it was higher, it'd be great because that means when, we, when you open up the doors again, the, the chance of it spreading is less. So it's a very important number to try to get a handle on. That's why they're doing it. Mm. Now, the final thing is about blood group A. We heard from a study that people with blood group A are more susceptible uh, and someone linking two things and saying, should we give those people steroids to protect them? Well, that's a good question, Pat, precisely. We'd love to know why it is that that blood group makes people have a worse course. And, and as that, that person has, has remembered, I mean, what happened there was if you were A, you were much more likely, you were 40% that it was more likely to go on a ventilator. 
So if, if that, if, you know, that, that, that does hold up at the moment. And if dexamethasone is working in that group in particular, remember the ventilated people, give them dexamethasone, that'll be, that'll be able to stratify that trial, you see, mm. or at least that treatment. But it, it wouldn't be good as a prophylactic, just put people on steroids in the hope that they wouldn't get it, I presume. Or, or, would, it, would, it be, or would it be another uh, um, hydroxychloroquine story? <laughs> no, well, it gets complicated. It only really worked in people on the ventilator or on oxygen. It didn't work on other people, dexamethasone. So it does seem to work on the more really severe end. That's partly, part. we think the ventilation is very traumatic, remember. It causes inflammation because you're sticking a big tube into someone, you know? So maybe the dexamethasone was limiting the damaging effects of ventilation and then people were surviving. Remember, there's a 50% chance of death. It's horrifying, isn't it? If you go on a ventilator. So it's partly to do with some of the trauma and maybe the dexamethasone was, was helping to relieve some of that trauma as well. That's was Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College Dublin speaking with Pat Kenny on Wednesday morning. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. On Wednesday afternoon, Ivan Yates was joined by Adrian Cummins, CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, and Donal O'Keefe, CEO of the Licensed Vintners Association, on the hard shoulder to discuss the measures that are in place to protect customers in restaurants and pubs. We welcome the proposal to move from two metres to one metre. That's, that's one of the big stories in, the, in, in this uh, new proposal. Uh, that Fall Charland uh, will be issuing tomorrow to our sector, we hope. Uh, that'll be, that's a game changer for industry. We in the association have been calling for this from the very, very start. So that's productivity for industry because within 12 days' time, we, we intend to be opening up across the country. With regard to the 90 minutes, it's still up for discussion. Fall Charland have been on a numer- number of news channels today saying that they have gone back to the health authorities to try and get it to two hours. What businesses want to do now is they want to get it up and open as quickly as possible under a viable solution. And I think two, uh, two hour slot is, is very viable. I think people want to get staff back into their businesses and back, back working. Uh, and that's what we want to do. Just on the 90 minutes, uh, I was saying earlier, you know, if I'm in a pub and Deirdre's collect me, I'd say, oh, I'm only on my second pint. Like I can say I just landed in 20 minutes ago. How on earth could you police if you went for a meal, the 90 minute rule? It's going to be very, very hard to police it. Um, that's, the, the, that's the long and the short of it, Ivan. Uh, but I'm sure the health authorities have um, medical advice that they're going to issue to back up these solutions that they are put, putting forward to us. Everybody wants to do the right thing in, in this crisis, this emergency that, that we are going through at the moment. And nobody wants an outbreak, and they don't, definitely don't want an outbreak in their premises. So let's see what the advice will be, the medical advice to back this up. And hopefully that we can all work together to get a viable solution to get businesses up and running and open in on Monday week. That's what we want to do. All right. Well, I'm very much getting from Adrian there. Half a loaf is better than no bread and welcomes this as progress. Uh, it's less clear-cut for the Vintners and the publicans. Donald O'Keefe, uh, what, what's your reaction? Because not only the 90-minute rule, which clearly makes it impossible to see the end of the match, uh, but also there's the issue of there must be a main midday or evening meal costing at least uh, €9, Euro, which would be a lot for a packet of crisps. It would indeed, Ivan. Yeah, well, uh, we we see a lot of positives here too. I mean, first and foremost, we're opening on the 29th of June, which is a long way forward from from what was originally mooted. Secondly, we had always just sought equality of opportunity across the food service business. We've always felt that the same conditions 
the same guidelines and then the same opportunity to trade should exist. Um, we very much welcome uh, the idea that we'll be able to work at a one metre social distancing guideline. That is is critically important and, and really welcome. And then there are, of course, some wrinkles. So the, the 90 minute rule is very difficult for us. Uh, we are uh, working to try and get that expanded to two hours. All of this we see as a temporary little arrangement anyway, in the sense that all pubs in Ireland open on the 20th of July. Uh, the food guidelines won't apply to those businesses, and uh, we're we, we looking forward to that. So clearly, we would expect that Enfit and the department will issue the guidelines for pubs, the drink element of pubs, uh, early, that we don't have this cutology going on uh, on 10 days from open opening with uh, it being leaked to the media and being drip-fed to the public. Right, so you, you, you want the, 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 the full picture. Can I just ask you, because we had John Harney from Clonmel on the programme who doesn't serve food, and he said, I was going to open anyway. For for those members that don't serve food, are they half of publicans? Are they a third of publicans? Well, what's the kind of profile of, of kind of drink-only uh, pubs across the country? Well, well in Dublin, uh, where we represent the pubs, uh, 70% would have full, uh, would be food pubs having kitchens, full menus, and 30% don't. All right. Now, in, Adrian, in terms of, of the practicalities of this, you know, the kitchen is a very busy place. You have people in, in a very hot circumstance, overcrowding. It's very stressful if you have a lot of covers uh, and so on. Like, is this kind of textbook theory and in reality, will it be very, very difficult to police? It will, Ivan. It'll be very, very difficult to police, but we will do our best. and We'll make sure that we will protect our customers and our staff. And if Basing on the reports that we see in the media today, personal protective equipment will have to be worn by staff within the kitchen. And there is a cost element to that, to that all, all, as we can see for businesses that are, operate, that are operating on takeaway. You're looking at about a €2,000 extra cost per month for a business to provide personal protective equipment. That's a huge amount of money for a small, small business that might have 20 people working in it. And uh, the sooner that we move this conversation on to getting sectoral supports to our industry, looking at the VAT rate, looking at grant aid for restaurants and hospitality, that's where we need to move the conversation very, very quickly too. And I think... Uh, but Adrian, what I'm taking from that is, if a meal for two was costing €70, Euro, you can expect a price hike. That's what that sounds like. Well, as a trade organisation, we can't uh, intervene in the area of pricing. But the cost of doing business is going to rocket in our industry. So you can do the maths for yourself that there will be businesses out there and they will have to uh, look at their business model to see whether they'll be able to be, will be viable or not. But government will have a, a part of this also. They, they can look at the VAT rate for us. They can look at supporting us around commercial rates and looking at supporters on a, on a sectoral uh, supports package. We've costed out for restaurants alone that the supports package that will give about €33,000 per, per business is about €120 to €130 million euro package that we need. And we need that very, very soon, like what the farmers got uh, five days ago.
Okay, finally, uh, uh, can I ask you, Donald O'Keefe, I mean, you'd think the way some people have been dealing with this issue, that pubs shouldn't reopen and so on, there's no one forcing anyone who's concerned about their health to go into any pub. Are your members being creative with beer gardens and outdoor areas and so on? Because it is the summertime to get around some of this social distancing requirement. Yeah, I suppose there's two points, Ivan. Obviously, our outdoor space becomes even more attractive. It was always very valuable, but in this environment, it's hugely, hugely attractive. And people, publicans are doing all they can to maximize that space. In the city in particular, um, it's simply not possible because it doesn't exist. But in suburbia, it is, and, and publicans will exploit it to the maximum. The second thing is we've just literally completed in the past uh, day a pretty extensive piece of consumer research into attitudes to pubs now post-COVID, what are consumers hoping for uh, as they as the trade looks to reopen. And we're enormously encouraged. There's huge pent-up demand. People are dying to get back for a drink, dying to get back to normal life. Pubs are part of normal life, and we're really looking forward now to the 29th of June to getting on with it. OK, finally, a question to both of you. A simple, <laughs> to, give me, to give me a figure. When Monday, Monday week, uh, uh, the pubs and restaurants reopen, for each of your sectors, what do you think, in your, just a guess now, will be the percentage will and won't open? Would you say it'll be 70-30 will try and reopen, Donald O'Keefe, 50-50 or what? Yeah, we would think about two-thirds. Seventy percent of the pubs uh, are food businesses as well as bar businesses, and we think the vast majority of those in Dublin will reopen on the 29th. Uh, And the same question to you, Adrian. Across the country, uh, uh, I see loads and loads of people have joined your association in your business. Uh, What proportion of restaurants do you think will open? I think the vast majority will uh, try and reopen on Monday the 29th. I think the conversation, as I said, needs to go on to support these people that they can stay open over the weeks and months ahead. But I think the vast majority will will open on the 29th. And it's important that uh, we provide a safe uh, environment for our customers and an enjoyable environment also. Adrian Cummins and Donal O'Keefe speaking to Ivan on Wednesday. As always, we will continue to bring you updates as they happen on News Talk, but be sure to subscribe to this podcast on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcast from. You can submit your questions or any comments you have to covidquestions at newstalk.com. Until next week, from me, Shane Beatty, bye-bye and take care.